Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. Peter Land has been with Dick Sporting Goods since mid-2020, where he currently serves as their Chief Communications and Sustainability Officer. He is also an adjunct professor at the New York University Stern School of Business, a position he has held since 1998. Prior to joining the team at Dick's, Peter specialized in corporate reputation and consumer marketing as a partner in New York strategic communications agency, Finsbury Glover Herring. Before that, he was senior VP of corporate communications for AOL, and earlier, he held that same title at PepsiCo. Other positions he held include Global Managing Director for PR powerhouse agency Edelman, Director of Marketing Communications for the National Basketball Association, and Promotions Director for Kraft Foods. In 1983, Peter scored his first big job, that of sports writer with the Washington Post. He had only a short time earlier graduated from Duke University, where he earned a bachelor's degree with honors. In this conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO, Paul Dyer, Peter discusses the importance of skills acquisition, how marketing and comms functions are merging, the value of cultivating great ideas, and much, much more. Without further ado, here is Dick Sporting Goods Chief Communications and Sustainability Officer, Peter Land. Peter, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us here today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, we're all very excited to hear from you. Um, and I thought we would start by talking about what's been really a, an interesting career trajectory you've had. So you were director of communications at the NBA for about five years. You worked agency side. You've been at food and beverage giant PepsiCo, tech leader AOL. You're now at Dick Sporting Goods. You're, you've really had a pretty diverse um, career. So, I mean, first of all, um, would love to just hear sort of in your own words, what led you along that path? Sure. Um, you know, I think it started off in a way, it's, it's interesting where I ended up at Dick Sporting Goods, because I think the journey really begins with, with a love of sports. Um, and I know you talked probably talked to a lot of folks in different industries that say you should kind of do what you love. Um, and I think it, it kind of fortuitously turned out that way. It, it took a lot of kind of swerves and turns along the way that were all incredibly valuable and important from a career standpoint. Um, but, I, you know, kind of where I am now does kind of relate back to where I started. I was a sports writer, you know, uh, out of school. I, I was a sports writer at my university and um, ended up being really fortunate to get a job at the Washington Post. And... Um, after doing that for a couple of years, um, I, I knew that I loved kind of the business of sports and kind of the, the business side of what was going on in the sports world. Um, a little less so kind of the, the X's and O's in the competition. Um, so I kind of made the choice um, pretty early in my career to shift out of sports writing and flow more into kind of what I would say, I guess, a traditional nine to five job, although, you know, the, the, the concept of nine to five doesn't really exist any anymore. Um, but at the time, kind of the, the, the shift felt natural to shift from journalism over to communications, you know, so that's kind of where it all started. And then, you know, there have just been opportunities that presented themselves along the way. And, and sometimes they were just, you know, fabulous opportunities to 
grow. For example, <clears throat> moving to London, you know, I didn't have uh, global experience at the time. And when Kraft approached me about a job in London, I thought, geez, you know, it's, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone, but the opportunity to pick up, you know, that experience was, was very, very valuable. And to this day, it's still important. And, and um, I think if you look at the PepsiCo job, there are some similarities in like picking up, you know, some skills that I hadn't had previously. So, so when I was running corporate comms there, um, I had the chance to work very closely with our CFO, you know, on investor uh, relations and, and um, with our general counsel on government affairs. So, uh, you know, kind of each step along the way, you know, I've been kind of fortunate to pick up a, some slightly different skills, you know, that have kind of ultimately, you know, led me to Dick's Sporting Goods um, where I am today. So I guess it's a little bit of a thread of sports, uh, a little bit of thread of business, and then kind of picking up, you know, various skills along the way, you know, that, uh, that kind of um, have helped me, you know, kind of get to, to this role. Funny, the, the sports connection and the do what you love connection is reminding me of one of my favorite quotes, which I'm going to butcher a little bit, but it's Mark Cuban basically saying, you know, people tell you to follow your passions. I'm passionate about basketball, but I have a six inch vertical. Right. So I was never going to play basketball. So instead, I tell people, follow what you're good at. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so obviously you're good at communications. Um, I'm, I'm curious your your perspective having worked in so many different, you know, corners of our industry, um, sort of on the current state of communications and really how it fits into the broader context of marketing, especially if you've got your business lens, the role of communications, you know, like how has it evolved and how do you feel about the state of the, you know, the sector today? Um, I feel great about the sector today. Um, I think one of the unintended consequences of a kind of a horrific episode in, in, in the country or in the world around, around the pandemic has kind of re-energized, reinforced, I think, the importance of communications, especially executive communications. Um, you know, there was a, a, a huge need for that, obviously, over the last couple of years. And, and much of our, our work in our organization was focused on, you know, a, a ton of communications, right? I mean, we have 850 stores. So you can imagine, um, there's mask mandates in state X. There's we're taking away the masks in state Y. Um, you know we're closed for this reason. We're opening for this reason. So, just in terms of of sharing with our stores things that were happening on a national level and things that were happening in their respective states, um, you know it was it was a massively important function, you know, inside of our company at the time, um, and it really it, it has remained so. But but I think it really pointed out. Um, the urgency of, of the discipline. And, and also, I think, again, we were, we were very, very lucky. We had Ed and Lauren are, are great communicators um, and they, they lead with a lot of empathy. Um, so when there's a, a crisis like there was, you know, starting in March of 2020, you know, they, they led with an employee first mentality. So everything was about taking care of, of, of our teammates and communications became a central discipline and kind of sharing with our teammates, hey, we're, we're closing our stores. You know, we we're furloughing people. It, it, it gives us, you know, an incredible amount of heartburn and pain to, to, to have to share this information with you. But this is where we are. We have to close our stores. Then when we were able to come back, you know, being able to share the positive news about, hey, we're, 
we're bringing everybody back from furlough and, and, and things like that. So there was just so much communication, you know, that, that happened over the last couple of years. So, I mean, I, I, I feel great about it. I mean, I, you know, I, I think one of the, um, you know, I spent, I think about nine years at Edelman, right. And, you know, Richard and, and Dan, you know, have always believed that, you know, uh, uh, communications has a seat at the, at the, in the C-suite. Um, so I think I got a lot of training, you know, from Richard, especially on, you know, you need to be in the room with the CEO, like, uh, decisions don't get made in these types of situations without you being in the room, you know? So I think that was, you know, going back to kind of my career arc, you know, having had that, that, experience of of this is a role for communications we're not on the outside we're on the inside we're in the inner circle you know we're, we're in the c-suite making decisions along the way with the board and so forth really kind of proved itself out you know um over the last couple of years but and i think that's a, a really important point um we hear it all the time right having a seat at the table but then of course it comes down to what you do with that seat so, you know, we just would love to hear in your own words, why is it important? I mean, I realize that might sound like a pedantic point, but like, like, why is it important for the head of communications to have a seat at that table? And how do you make the most of it? Uh, that's a great question. So um, I, I think at least in our company, but I really think this extends to every company, um, there are so many stakeholders that are following and caring about the company. Um, and if you are, I think communications as, as a discipline and certainly in our country, in our company, sorry, um, is kind of the glue that's able to cut across the various stakeholder groups and make sure that there's some consistency and clarity, right? So when, again, when we had to close our stores, you know, we had to deliver a message to our shareholders. We had to deliver a message to our employees. We had to deliver a message to consumers, right? I mean, how could you possibly architect the strategy if you're the CEO and, and, and the board in that situation without communications having a seat at the table? Like, it's just not possible because you could have three different messages going out to three different stakeholder groups that all are, are they talk to each other, right? So that doesn't right. make sense, right? So. So fundamentally, I think most companies have, have bought into the idea that for consistency, you know, empathy um, and, and uh, uh, I would say discipline, you know, in telling the story, whatever that story might be, whether it's good news or bad news, there has to be discipline. And, and that's the discipline that we specialize in in our, in our world, right? So, so in your next job, whenever that happens, after Dick's Sporting Goods, you're going to be the chief consistency and clarity officer. Yeah, yeah that's exactly, I like that. <laughs> Actually pretty I good. <laughs> I might have, have to go put a job description out to go hire somebody to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, look, and it's, um, not a, it's not a criticism of, I love our CMO, Ed Plummer. Like he's fabulous, you know, um, and our, our, our chief talent officer, our chief um, people officer, Julie, like, you know, they're, they're incredibly competent executives that are, you know, understand, you know, how to deliver messages to, to various audiences or they wouldn't be working, you know, at the company in, in the C-suite. Um, but there does need to be some, I guess, connective tissue, you know, um, and, and that's really where communications has such an important role because, again, I think, um, and, and our, you know, no disrespect to all the attorneys that might be listening here, but, 
you know, and I joke with our general counsel all the time, you know, there's how, you know, um, uh, uh, that discipline might, you know, kind of deliver a story, you know, and, and then there's how, you know, we might come in and say, hey, that sounds, that's all actu- accurate language. And I guess that completely makes sense. But remember, you're communicating to a 22-year-old hourly worker in a small town in Montana, you know, and are they going to really, is is that going to make sense to them? Is that going to feel like, you know, it's coming from the heart, you know? Um, So I I think that's where, that's the role that we play. We can kind of be the the heart. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, So I'm I'm also just curious from having been in the the belly of the beast, so to speak, you know, you, you joined the company, I think in 2020, right? I did. The, the, um, I worked at Finsbury prior to that for about five years and Dix was a client, you know, so I had been kind of part of the Dix Sporting Goods family since around November of 2017. Um, so I just kind of made the switch to go kind of external to internal um, in, in uh, July of 2020. And, and you've you've given you know praise now to many of the other members of your leadership team, your peers, um, your CEO, et cetera. Um, but you all went through you know battle together here, right? Any yes. um, any leadership lessons that really stuck out from the many that I'm sure that you um, experienced in that in that period? I mean, it sounds cliche, you know, but I, I think employee first. Um, worked for us. And I, you know, and I think it probably worked for many, you know, companies that, that face the pandemic, you know, the, the business, you know, will eventually trail, you know, but I think Ed and Lauren led from day one, it was all about the people. Um, they, you know, whether it was maintaining healthcare benefits or, you know, thinking about how to compensate people, you know, even after we had to furlough people and how were we going to do that? And how are we going to, you know, kind of keep their medical insurance so that they wouldn't have any lapses. Um, how quickly could we bring people back? You know, I think if you kind of, if your North star in, in a crisis like that is how do we take care of people? I think it kind of galvanizes the leadership team. We, we had a call every morning at eight o'clock and it always started with how are people feeling? You know, um, what are you hearing out in the field? How can we, are there people, are there groups that we need to take care of? Um, and, and I think partially that's, you know, it's a family business, right? I mean, Ed, Ed's family started the company, Ed's, you know, still the chairman of the company, you know, so I think we had the, in this situation, we were very, very fortunate to have somebody who has run a family business treat 40,000 people like members of his family. And what an amazing experience. So you, you also mentioned your CMO and being incredibly competent. Now, obviously, <laughs> communications and marketing merging more today than ever before. Um, you know, we're big believers in the idea of earned creative, something that um, your former agency, Edelman, you know, it has really popularized you know, a lot as well, um, which is this idea that marketing can be led through you know, earned first ideas. And Curious, first of all, what your perspective is on that um, and sort of what this convergence looks like today and will continue to look like as marketing and communications come together. Sure. Um, look, Ed Plummer and I are joined at the hip. <laughs> we, we are constantly in contact um, with each other and, and percolating ideas together. Um, so that, you know, I, I think I wouldn't say like an 
I wouldn't call it earned first or more, or kind of paid first. I, I, I think the power and ultimately ends up in the idea and the idea can come from anywhere. Right. Um, so if you look at, you know, I would say if you look at 2021, right. For us, the inside moves campaign, which was a tele, mostly a television commercial about the leadership team at Dick's Sporting Goods was, it was led by an insight that led to a, I thought a, a terrific television commercial in a, in a way it's kind of old fashioned. We, we led with a TV spot. Right. Um, and then we kind of waited to see a little bit like, you know, what's the response going to be here? You know, how do, how are people going to feel about it? Um, and then earned kind of followed because, um, the reaction was incredibly positive, you know? Um, and we kind of said, wow, okay, maybe we, we have a little bit of lightning in a bottle. We weren't really sure, you know, but it felt, it felt like we had permission, you know, to go pretty hard, um, to support it, but we didn't like, it wasn't like we started like calling a, a bunch of, you know, journalists and saying, Hey, go look at, you know, go look at our TV spot. It, it was more like we, we, um, repurpose the content from the campaign and then drove it through LinkedIn. So we took each of the leaders that were in the 30 second spot and then, you know, did individual features on each of them through our, our social channels. Um, and that's how we kind of, it, it really, it, it started with a 30 second spot and then fed into social and, and a little bit of earned and then employee communications. Now that's just one example where kind of the, the insight was, you know, maybe we should do some creative around our leadership team and it kind of flowed from there, right? Now, the, the, the flip side of that is what we did with the NCAA uh, women's basketball tournament last year. So I'm not sure how many of the listeners remember that there was a, um, a viral video going around that showed the disparity between the men's weight room and the women's weight room at, at the final four. Um, and I was, uh, uh, I was watching the, I saw the video and I emailed our, our head of marketing, uh, Melissa. And I said, you know, we were emailing each other, like, you know, did you see this? Like, like what we should do something about this. Cause we sell weights. Right. So that was a midnight email that led to a 7.00 AM conference call that led to a call to all of our stores in San Antonio that said, let's load up the trucks and bring some weights over to the Alamo dome because they need, they need to have weights in the weight room. So that was kind of led by a combination of communications saying, hey, we think there's an idea here, you know, uh, to, to show the NCAA and show the women's basketball community that we're, we're there. Um, and that ended up being a kind of a, a, an incredible moment. You know, the NCAA ultimately, you know, decided they didn't need the weights that we had, but we completely energized our teammates in San Antonio. Um, the Today Show, you know, kind of, uh, followed the story USA Today uh, became a pretty intense social media um, story that, that kind of grew and grew and grew. And it just started with the insight of how can we be helpful? Right. Yeah. So I think as you think through like, you know, how marketing and communications get together, ultimately it's just whatever is the insight or the idea. Um, and there, it could start with earned and flow into paid. It could start with paid and flow into earned. Like it, I think it's, it's all on the table, you know, um, for any, any, at any given point in time, whatever the insight is. And then, you know, the teams kind of all work together and say like, how do, how do we want to flow this out? Well, and it sounds like the common thread, you know, if I, if I take your inside movers example as well, is how do we be helpful? Because your executives yeah. and your, your leadership 
started with that premise as well. Um, you, you used a word a few minutes ago, which is um, an important you know word in our context today, which is permission. And Dix has, um, has entered into a number of conversations, cultural conversations, societal conversations, right? There's um, the, the gun reform issue, you know, following um, the Parkland shooting. Um, no doubt, you know, you've, you've had um, a number of, you know, many, I'm sure, of your retail employees have, have raised social justice. Um, you've made a, a significant commitment to the Boys and Girls Club of America with your Triple Play Daily Challenges program, a lot of different things. And so the question that I have is sort of, how do you decide when and to what extent you engage in these, in these societal conversations and opportunities? It's a great question. Um, I'll start with firearms because I think that's, the, in a way, the easiest one to talk about. Um, as, as much as it's also the, the hardest one to talk about, because it's still very emotional. Um, you know, after Parkland, um, Ed, you know, was very clear that, you know, um, it was time to change some of our policies. Um, there was a lot of back and forth <laughs> on, you know, were we going to do this? When were we going to do this? How are we going to talk about it? Um, you know, Ed is, is a very humble um, leader and always has been. So the idea of, of publicly talking about something that that's just, just kind of feels like the right thing to do, you know, um, you know, at the very, very beginning, you know, there wasn't consensus, like maybe we should do this, but, but maybe we don't really have to talk about it. Let's just do it because we want to just do the right thing, but we're not going to talk about it. Eventually we got to the point where, no, if we're going to do this, you know, let's, let's go talk about it. So, so, you know, we ended up doing, we only did three interviews that day. Um, we did good morning, America, CNN and NBC nightly news. Um, it felt like we did a lot, a lot more because the adrenaline, it was kind of drained out of, of all of our respective bodies, you know, by, by 10 30 that morning when all the tapings were over, it, it felt like, you know, we, we, we'd done a lot more, but the, the reason that we got involved in the firearms decision were there were there were several one is it's certainly something we know about right so we we are a seller of firearms so we know there are some loopholes that are insane um they just need to be closed we know that background checks should be more substantial we we believe there should be age restrictions we believe very strongly that there need to be restrictions on on assault rifles and and that belief comes from we're in that business. We really understand the business. So we felt like we had very much had permission to be public and, and um, you know, impassioned about our beliefs as it relates to firearms. Um, and so in, in some respects, that wasn't a hard decision because from a social, from a, you know, are we, are we prepared to enter into a challenging debate um, because we felt so strongly about it and we had knowledge about the subject, right? Now we knew at the time, you know, not everybody was going to be happy about it. You know, um, it's pretty widely, you know, public that we lost about two hundred fifty million dollars in revenue um, because people just didn't want to shop with us anymore. But it, it, it was um, it was unanimous. We would do it again if we if, if faced with that same decision. We would do that again, right? So, firearms again. In it's 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 almost four years later. It's hard to believe, um, and it's incredibly tragic that nothing has changed 
um, since then. There's still no new firearms policy. There's still no um, stronger background checks. Assault rifles are still, you know, widely available. So it's, it's, you know, um, we keep, you know, we meet internally all the time, like, geez, what more is there that we could do, <laughs> you know, on this topic? But at a certain point, it's, at, it's out of our hands. But um, I guess long, long, long story long, you know, we, we felt like we had something to say. When it comes to other issues, we are a lot more circumspect because we don't necessarily believe we have all the answers. You know, so we don't jump into a lot of a lot of issues because we're not sure that that's that we come with a lot of expertise. We might we might have a strong position internally, and we might have a strong belief system internally, but to comment on it externally, if it's not something that we're you know kind of deeply involved in, we more or less take the position that you know let's let's let others who are really experts in this space and super knowledgeable about this space, and we're okay to we're okay to kind of. Um, take a little bit of a backseat there. I think that's, I mean, it's a great um, example to set when you think about, I mean, all of the sort of the accusations of performative um, stances from brands and companies and things like that. Um, and now, of course, we're in an era of show your receipts and you have $250 million of receipts. I mean, I, I have to wonder how many executives, you say that you're you know, unanimous. Um, I wonder how many executives, if we were to ask them, you know, like how much revenue would you sacrifice to do the right thing, where that number would be, but it probably wouldn't be 250 million for a lot of them. So it really, that's an inspiring story. So thank you for sharing it. No um, so you, um, you've been a professor at NYU, switching gears here, totally switching gears. You've been yeah. a professor for 20 years, right? Yeah. You um, spoke in the beginning about how your career trajectory was really sort of following new you know, skill developments. Um, so if you think about people who would aspire to be in your seat someday, um, what are the skills you know, and the, the mindsets that you would encourage them to embrace? Um, my, the seat that I have now or my, my professor seat? I meant to see you met professionally. Okay. You're exposed to lots of kids who are learning from you as a sure, professor. Sure. Okay. You know, so so what would you teach uh, you know, people? What skills do you think they should adopt? So um it's uh you know, it's in the being working from home quite a bit over the last couple of years. Um, my kids have heard me say this, you know, quite often. I have, you know, two that are one still in school and, and two are college graduates, but um human connection. Um, and building a network and, and forging deep, meaningful personal relationships um, are massively important in business. Um, I, I guess I could say it's massively important in communications. Um, I think it's important across the board, but I, I think maybe especially in our discipline, um, you just can't rely on email and teams. And, um, you know, over the course of my career, whether it's here or at the NBA or at Dick's, I mean, or at uh, AOL or, or any place that I've worked, you know, kind of building and forging those relationships and building a network, you know, has led me to kind of succeed at each level in, in slightly different ways, because there are many, many times we'll be in a meeting and something will come up and I'll say, you know, I know somebody at that company, why don't I give them a call and see what they think? Or, you know, I know you think that's like, you know, good morning America worthy, but you know, I don't really think it is. Let me talk to a friend of mine who's a producer over there and do like a, 
a gut check on is this a good idea or a crappy idea, right? Um, so I, I think, you know, um, building relationships, maintaining relationships and building a network is vital. Um, I would say uh, um, the, the art of writing still matters, right? At the end of the day, you have to communicate, you know, both um, up and down in, a, in an organization, right? So I, when I meet with our board or I meet with our CEO, I usually prepare a short brief of here's what I want to talk about. Here's the topics I want to cover with you. Here's where I, here are the things I just need you to know, but here are the things that we need to, that need to have decisions made, you know, and being able to like, you know, um, succinctly and professionally say, this is what matters. This is what you need to focus on. Don't worry about this. I have this covered, but we need to talk about this um, is really important. Um, and similarly, you know, when I talk to my own team, you know, being able to say, hey, here are the objectives that we're trying to um, achieve as an organization. Here's why we're doing it. Um, verbal skills are, are important for sure, but being able to have clarity and, and to write with clarity and, and being able to kind of share a vision um, both visually, you know, and, and, um, verbally, um, is still massively important to our function. Well, and I guess that's why you're the chief clarity officer. <laughs> so, so that's great writing and relationship building and an important reminder that relationship building is not liking things on social media. It's sitting in person and, and seeing somebody. Um, so this has been Peter, really great. Thank you for sharing all of your insights. Um, I know that our readers and listeners are really going to be, um, take away a lot from this. So thank you for your time and your insights. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. All right. Here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Peter Land. Number one, build personal relationships and networks in person. Emailing back and forth with people you meet online is no way to make viable connections. According to Peter, you need to interact face-to-face, -face, if possible, because that's how deep, meaningful, personal relationships are forged. He also makes the point that personal relationships are massively important in communications. It's important across the board, but especially in our discipline, earned creative comms. Having a solid network allows you to do things like, say to your work colleagues, I think your idea could get us some airtime at one of the big morning shows. A friend of mine is a producer there. Let me ask them if they think so too. Number two, find opportunities to repurpose. To illustrate the point, Peter cites the example of a campaign his brand conducted last year called Inside Moves. The centerpiece was a 60-second commercial featuring eight of Dick's Sporting Goods' top executives, all of whom are female, with company CEO Lauren Hobart voicing over the story of how the brand is driving the entire industry to boost women's and girls' athletics. But while the content of the commercial started with a great idea, it wasn't the only bit of ingenious thinking. Peter explains that he and his team additionally came up with a strategy of weaving the commercial's message into profiles of the women execs for dissemination via social channels and then repurposing those personality snapshots for internal use as employee relations team-building tools. Number three, find opportunities to let your brand value shine by solving problems. 
Peter tells of seeing just before the 2021 NCAA Final Four Women's Basketball Tournament a viral video revealing how poorly equipped the women's weight room was at the event venue, the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, Texas. That sparked a publicity gambit in which the Dick's Sporting Goods store in San Antonio pitched in to deliver to the Alamo Dome sufficient weight equipment to put the women's weight room on par with the much better outfitted men's room. It was an incredible moment that let the NCAA know we're here for the women's basketball community, Peter says. This completely energized our San Antonio teammates and got us coverage in USA Today and on NBC's Today Show. It also became an intense social media story that grew and grew and grew. Thanks for always listening to Frictionless Marketing. Don't forget to subscribe today. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.